Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short, interactive 10-minute fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Parag Khanna, leading global strategy advisor, world traveler, and best-selling author. He's founder and managing partner of FutureMap, a data scenario-based strategic advisory firm. Parag's newest book is The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Prague was named one of Esquire's 75 Most Influential People of the 21st Century and featured on Wired Magazine's Smart List. Prague has been an advisor to the U.S. National Intelligence Council Global Trends 2030 Program, a senior research fellow in the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and he has served in Iraq and Afghanistan as a senior geopolitical advisor to the United States Special Operations Forces. Prague dropped by Asia Society Hong Kong to conduct the following interview. Okay, Parag, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Yeah, Great to talk it. with you. Yeah, you're you're, uh, you're an old friend of Asia Society, so right. yeah, we're always happy to have you here. Um, yeah, so we're, we're pretty um, cognizant of your time, so we understand that um, you have to catch a flight after this uh, pretty fast. So let's jump right into it. But before we start, we'd like to ask all our guests, what is the, uh, we're wondering if you had a morning routine, what's the first hour of your day like? I try to have a morning routine, and I've, it, maybe it takes different people, uh, you know, different amounts of time or years of life to figure out what routine works best for you. But I have figured out that an ideal day begins at about 4.30 or 5, uh, let's say 5, you know, wake up and, um, you know, freshen up, sit outside. Uh, it's still dark in Singapore at that time. And, uh, you know, just do some breathing exercises, stretch out a bit, make a cup of tea, um, and then start to gradually, you know, check emails and respond to emails and catch up on the news. Um, and then, then you know, have breakfast with the family. I like to uh, exercise in the morning for an hour and kind of get that out of the way, but also when your mind is and your body are kind of fresh and um, kind of knock that out. And uh, ideally then write. You know, I even start writing in the morning before breakfast if I get all the other stuff out of the way because then your mind is really clear. Um, and then keep on writing, working, doing projects until noon. And I try not to leave the house actually until noon. So uh, pack any meetings that I have outside of the house between 12 and 5 and, uh, and then kind of have family time rest of the day. So you find that um, it's, it's really important to get all of sort of the hard, deep thinking stuff out of the way. Absolutely. Uh, at the beginning of the day. Yeah. I mean, so the volume of things you can write and the clarity with which you write between, say, 5 and 6 a.m. is a much greater and better output, I think, than what you would write between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. That's great. I mean, for aspiring writers out there, um, how did you sort of uh, figure that out? I think, again, it has more to do with my age and then with any particular profession, right? It's just, uh, I think, finding your routine may link to what you do professionally, but it may just be about what's your kind of biological, you know, sort of condition, you know? So, for example, maybe when I was younger, I would get really hungry in the morning and need breakfast, but now I'm a little bit older and I don't get hungry until lunch. So I don't really need to think about that as a morning priority, right? But I would say, you know, and, and, you know, again, yoga, meditation, whatever you want to call it or however you practice it, mindfulness, you know, breathing, silence, 
young people do do that now, but they certainly didn't do it when I was a teenager, you know, or in my, my 20s. And that obviously helps you be focused in the morning if you weren't. So that's something I've learned now a little bit later in life. And so I practice it. And uh, so I think it just depends on when. For example, there all of these things that we're talking about, I wish I had known, right, when I was 15 or something and I would have executed them. I actually had a dream the other night about a hypothetical, which is, if I had to go back and live life over again, at what age would I reset the clock and go back to knowing the things I know now? Right. And I decided it would be 18. 18. Um, 18. Because you more or less are doing what other people have told you to do up until then. You know, obviously you can't, um, you know, you go to you go to school, You in most cases a local public school, you live at home in most cases. And uh, for me, it's also that age that is at the intersection of uh, or the, the sort of uh, cutoff point or transition zone between millennials and Gen Z. Mm. And that's a key demographic as well. But if I knew what I know now when I was 18 and I got to relive life again, like I'd be on hyperdrive. Really? <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll circle back to that a yeah. little bit later because that's a very important uh, <laughs> the type of advice that you want to give to your 18-year-old self. But um, I, I guess as young people these days, uh, we have a lot of influences that we remember from our past. Right. Uh, father, mother, yeah. teacher, friend. What's uh, one good advice that you can remember that somebody that you really looked up to when you were younger gave to you? Well, almost everything that has shaped my life, my career, you know, beneficially, whether it's a person, you know, or a place, it, it comes down to traveling, you know, and mm. kind of being mobile. And uh, so, for example, the most profound experience I had in, uh, in my early teens, or actually when I was 12, was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. right. So the fall of the Berlin Wall was the first event that I witnessed, you know, live on television that I understood what was going on. It was a world historical event. I was fixated, glued to it. Um, shortly after it fell, uh, my parents took me to Berlin. So mm. we went straight to Berlin within a month of the wall coming wow. down. And I sat on the wall. I actually hacked away at the wall with a hammer, uh, which you could borrow for five Deutschmarks. That was the, for all you kids out there, that was the currency <laughs> of Germany uh, through, through the 90s. Um, and that was an amazing experience. So literally, I could say, truthfully say everything I've done my whole life in the last 30 years, because the wall fell 30 years ago uh, in a couple of months from now, so has been the result of that one experience. And everything else, well, the, the mentors, you know, the guides, you know, whether it's academics, the best advice has always been to go to a certain place, you know, to learn a language, to study somewhere else, all of those things. So for me, it's always been about travel and mobility. So you still have that piece of the Berlin Wall? Oh, I lots of them, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Not on eBay, just... Uh, no, no, <laughs> I, I gave a lot away. I, I packed them in Ziploc bags and okay. gave them out to the whole eighth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful uh, yeah. souvenir that you might have. I, if they kept it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying uh, the future is Asian, but according to you, actually, it's the present that is Asian. Yeah. Um, so with items like the Belt and Road Initiative in um, Asia is winning the new infrastructure race, um, what, uh, for the youth of today, what would better prepare themselves for that reality that is here or coming in terms of uh, skills, um, studies? Um, how, how, how would you uh, sort of uh, guide that path? 
You know, a lot of people might think the answer is learn Chinese, you know, but uh, if you really go through the rigorous and it's difficult effort when you're in your early 40s to, you know, project into the future for the life of a teenager, you actually come to different conclusions about what things you must know. And the most important thing that you must know for the future is actually something that I wish we, that more people knew in the present, which is economics. Mm. So my answer for people is not go learn Chinese. The first thing you need to know is economics. And it's a painful discipline. I hated it. I got very bad grades in economics in college. Uh, I'm more self-taught than an economist than, an ex, than a sort of academic one. Um, but you just can't get anywhere in life, quite frankly, without understanding economics and finance, you know, trade and, and, and issues around just global capital, capitalism, entrepreneurship, how to run a company, business structures, all of these things that you really shouldn't wait to for an MBA to do. You know, young people today shouldn't be getting MBAs at all. They should be living it, right, right. By, by being entrepreneurs. So learn economics. Then travel. You know, travel to China. Travel all over Asia. Travel to India. Travel to Japan. Learn about how Asian societies are, um, you know, how their past culture shaped their present governance, how they balance the, the pressures of kind of Western ideas um, and, and legacies like democracy and freedom with their own kind of, uh, you know, government systems and how they find that balance successfully or unsuccessfully um, and immerse yourself as much as possible in that. And as a third thing, you might want to deep dive into a language. And again, it may seem ironic. You know, for me, I, Hindi is my first language. I uh, split my time growing up also with Ger- in Germany. And, and for me, German is also kind of a native language. But, um, you know, to, it takes a lot of time. Obviously, it's not a bad thing to do, but in terms of a life skill, if you think about the ways in which instant translation technologies are growing, if I were to honestly look at the life of a 15-year-old today and imagine the next 5, 10 years, you're going to be able to put in that Google or Microsoft Skype earbud and speak to anyone you want anywhere in the world you want. So I don't want to be that old guy who inflicts the pain of language labs on kids if they're not going to need it. Um, you know, I'm also married to a technologist, and my wife has this now you know, fairly famous uh, saying that it's uh, the two global languages are not English and Chinese. It's English and code, mm. right? So you know, code is, is tech would rank up there with economics as something that all kids should know and have a basic kind of proficiency or fluency in. All of those things matter no matter where you're growing up, no matter whether you care about Asia or not, live in Asia or not. These are the new universals, if you will. Well, in terms of code especially, it teaches sort of a framework, I think, of thinking, yeah. uh, that sort of logic. Which, by the way, is just math at yes, the end of the day, right? right? It's, uh, I'm glad you use the word logic because it is logic, and logic precedes even math to some degree. Right. So if you were to really break it down, you would say first uh, logic, then math, and then applying that to the sort of dom- domain of computing, right? But it, it also obviously is very applicable to the domain of economics. Um, so these, again, are, are life skills. And the, again, the ability to immerse, right? The ability to mirror image, you know, we call it in political science, to just see the world through the eyes of others. And that, for me, you know, living in Germany, living in, uh, in Asian countries is as important as learning the language. It's just understanding their point of view. How has a great failure in your life set you up for later success? Um, you know, I failed a number of times year after year to get into the graduate PhD programs that I wanted to. And then eventually I did get into one of the ones I wanted to. But what happened was that 
each time I was, you know, confronted with these, you know, letters of rejection, I decided to make the most of the time that I now had at my disposal, you know. So the first cycle around when I found out that I wasn't getting into the PhD programs I wanted, I actually wrote my first book proposal. You know, I wound up writing what became a best-selling book, translated into many, many languages, um, and rather than doing my PhD. Wow. So I only went and did my PhD after I already had, you know, a kind of a pretty major geopolitical book under my belt, and it gave me a lot more confidence yeah. going into a PhD a program. Credit, so in yeah. other words, kind of everything's for the best is, you know, important, uh, you know, axiom to sort of live by, you know, roll with the punches. But number one rule of life for me today is don't waste time. You know, you can ask my kids, literally, they, they could complete the sentence for me. You know, I hate wasting time. I think about even the even if it in retrospect, it was trivial, the times the time that I wasted, whether as an idle teenager or whatever, I look back and say, I can't believe I wasted that much time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, th- that doesn't mean not doing nothing because there is a virtue. You know, there's right. entire books and schools of thought devoted to why young people and old people should spend lots of time being bored and doing nothing. That has strategic value, and I'm not denying that. But the ways in which I might have done it had no value whatsoever. So I think that, you know, I hate to see people waste time. And when I, you know, this is more specifically with respect to, um, you know, challenges and failures. Don't just sit by and accept fate that is kind of given to you by others, right? Make the most of every situation. And that's what I mean when I say don't waste time. Are there any sort of a mind thought experiments that you like a like a kid who's fifteen who's wasting time who's a little bit lost? You you give them that uh, sort of advice. How could they um, apply that to to their lives? They, they feel a little helpless. Well, so much of life is these decision trees, right? Mm-hmm. Am I going to study humanities or am I going right. to study science? You know, uh, am I going to play this sport or that sport? And so maybe the best thing you can do is to put yourself through these micro deep dives and say, you know what, I'm going to give this sport my all for one month and see if I do like it, if I develop an aptitude for it. Um, You know, and I found that with uh, academics, you know, sort of knowing what you wanted to study earlier is obviously better than figuring it out later on. So I knew from the time the Berlin Wall fell, for example, that I was going to study international relations. Now, I was I was really good at math. I was just doing well in like physics and chemistry and other subjects. But eventually, I also saw that in the later high school years, I was definitely not as good as the top kids in those mm-hmm. things, as much as I actually like them. And I said, you know what? I'm done with that. I'm done with messing around with stuff that I like, but I'm just okay at. I'm going to stick with the one thing that I know is my passion and I can be better. You know, so again, that came then when I was about 14, 15, I said, I'm going to go live in another country and finish high school somewhere else. And so I moved to Germany. And so that only reinforced the advantages that of, of for me in studying abroad and learning international history and languages and, um, you know, kept me on that path. So the sooner you can figure out what you want to be when you grow up, you know, I guess the better, Mm. although it's not a requirement, right? Today, I would look back and say, my niche is being a generalist, right? Right. Everyone's looking for that niche, like, I've got to be the best coder. You know, there's this expression, average is over, right? Right. And if you're not the best, you're screwed. The robots are going to take your job. But one of the of the many jobs that robots will never take is the job of the generalist, right? right? The guy whose job it is to not be an expert in just one thing. And so, in a way, I'm a professional generalist. Uh, So, you know, I haven't given up 
on other things, right? But I've just figured out how to fit them into my main thing. Mm. Interesting. Well, I, I, you touched uh, uh, on a few good points there. How about you knowing what you wanted to do at such a young age? And um, you, you talked about sports. I, it, I, it says you were an avid tennis yeah, player, yeah. and you were almost a tennis pro. No, 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 I don't think anyone would ever say that about me, and I would never say it about <laughs> myself. But I was very competitive. Right. I played a lot of tournaments. It certainly ate up lots of weekends and mornings right. and afternoons. Um, you know, and uh, but the, again, I was never at the level where I'd be getting a division one scholarship and you know touring around the world you know so so that was a pretty easy decision not to mention a shoulder injury oh, um, when i was 17 so it was just it was kind of at any in any case once i decided to go and you know just rather than stay in the new york you know sort of uh local even national you know uh, athletic and academic scene by moving abroad alone you know i clearly put an emphasis on academics mm-hmm. you know and that became my thing and so by the time i got to college there was no question that all i was going to do is study international relations were there, uh, to go back to that were there any lessons from tennis that you sort of uh, learned that you find applicable I think anyone who has to balance, uh, so again, manage their time, right, mm-hmm. between academics and sports, you know, by definition, there's 24 hours in the day. And every young student athlete that I know to this day is someone who's just masterful time manager. Right. And so the, the more I played tennis, the better I became at time management because I simply couldn't waste time anymore. And I just want to add, by the way, that the 42-year-old me today could destroy the 17-year-old me in tennis. So <laughs> longevity is matters. Uh, I've recovered from that injury. Good skills. Yeah. Um, going back, what is your biggest fear for the short term and the long term? For myself or the world? Um, whichever you find most applicable for the youth. I'm, I'm, you know, fortunately less concerned about myself, knock on wood, okay. you know, than about uh, the, the fate of the millennial generation and Generation Z because, uh, and, you know, I think we discussed earlier, I'm writing my whole next book about this because the, if you were born in the late 1970s, there, you've just been in this sweet spot of a bubble that you've been living in and it's carried you through life right. because, you know, uh, economic growth has happened at just yeah. the right time. You know, uh, global kind of freedom and, you know, Cold War victory is something you've tasted to triumph. Uh, you know, recessions have not happened at the times that hurt you the most. Yeah. Labor automation didn't kick in, but you, you know, benefited from mobile technology right. and you're, you're not a digital native, but you're good enough. So I've, you know, I, I reflect on this. Like people, if you were born in 1975 to 1980, it was just kind of perfect everything's just been perfect for us but now i'm looking at everyone who's half my age and younger right so age 20 and below or you know early 20s and below and things look very different right and i think about things psychologically you've grown up and you don't remember the fall of the berlin wall but you remember 9-11 you remember the global financial crisis and you know the wars in iraq and afghanistan you don't really have this frame of reference in which there was this post-Cold War triumphalism of the West. So there's a lot of, you know, lack of uh, civilizational confidence, you could say, for for Western youth. Whereas if you've grown up in Asia, it's all been pretty good. Other than air pollution, you know, things have been pretty awesome, right, for for, for you and your countries. And that's really, you know, great. So I noticed this discrepancy, dichotomy. 
but also then the commonalities among youth, because even if you are relatively better off than your parents, that doesn't exactly help you in your daily life. You know, the fact is that you are racing against the robots. You don't know what to study. You may be mired in student debt. And, uh, you know, you don't have enough savings to, uh, you know, the cost of living has gone through the roof. You can't afford a mortgage or to buy a home. So I'm trying to think about everything from the point of view of people, you know, again, who are, who are millennials and the challenges they're facing. And I, I definitely have more concern for them than for anyone my age. Mm. And so it's looking like a bleak sort of future for them. Well, no, it's not a bleak future. It's just a very, very nonstop bumpy set of challenges, mm-hmm. right, uh, for them because they don't have the financial security that people my age would have built up if we had just kind of, you know, jumped through the hoops in a very basic kind of way uh, from the time we were 18 onwards, right? So even if I had not done, and no one, you know, most people I know haven't done anything particularly special or extraordinary, but just by not screwing up, you're in a pretty good place right now. Right. Where again, if you're in your, if you're a teenager or in your 20s, you pretty much have to do a lot of things right, and you don't have much time to to make mistakes. You can't even afford mistakes uh, at this point in time. So it's not about having a bleak future. It's the need for just relentless focus. And we see in the data just how overwhelming and tiring that is kind of psychologically for young people. You know, we see rates of uh, addiction to to drugs and, you know, antidepressants and this kind of thing and the stresses of school. Um, You know, it gets to people. And I, I have a lot of pity, but I think that this generation can see it through. But they... And I can see the restlessness in wanting to, you know, change policies for the better. You can see it with the, with um, the ways in which Occupy Wall Street has uh, evolved into millennial socialism, you know, in the United States. Um, you can see it in the, the push, um, you know, in Europe, you know, to maintain uh, the welfare state, you know, and to have more efficient, responsive government, you know. So in all of this, I see a generational tension in which I wish that the voices and priorities of the young were had a much heavier weight to them than they do right now. And that, to me, is a big thing. So I'm a big supporter of kind of youth movements. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you said 18 was sort of the uh, crossroad um, um, age that you would have liked to have gone back to uh, to give yourself advice. So is there any final advice you'd like to give to the younger generation that's 18 years old right now? It still is that age. You know, I could, you could actually reduce it to, say, 15, because these days you see 15-, 16-year-olds starting their own companies right. and making money and kind of, you know, again, deciding on their careers and even doing online courses at the university level way before they're even applying to colleges. Right. So, so the one piece of advice, and, and very few governments are helping at this stage do it, but some are, it's think about education as this kind of passport of stamps that you collect. You know, actually the Gates Foundation, others call it badges. You know, you're collecting badges, like merit badges in the Boy Scouts. Don't think of learning anymore as this distinct set of phases that, okay, I'm 18, I've graduated high school, now I decide where I'm going to go to college. If you're 14 or 15 today, it's like, okay, I'm going to just keep on learning things and I want them to be certified. I want a badge for this and a certificate for that and I want it in an online passport and I want to be able to share it with different employers and I want to think about, um, you know, uh, college is just this evolving set of classes that you're doing alongside uh, things that you're learning and jobs that you're doing. So in Canada, you know, the entire university is built around this. You actually only study one semester, then you go work a semester, you go back and study another semester. So begin that life learning, learning, learning process today and formalize it. Right? You're not just dabbling, but collect those certi- certifications that, that mean that you've tested yourself and that the market respects and recognizes what you have achieved. And start that as young as you wake up to the possibility that you can do it. Oh, wow. That's, that's 
topic or advice, and this is going to be all covered in your upcoming book. Oh, very much so. Oh, wonderful. I can't wait for that to come out. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, finally, uh, it's Asia Society's 30th anniversary in January 2020. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we would just like to ask our guests, what was their first trip to China or Asia, and what was their initial impression? Well, I was born in India, so that kind of takes care of that. Uh, and I, I grew up in Abu Dhabi before we moved to the U.S. But my first trip back, uh, it took a few years, you know, until I was um, sort of preteen that we did a long family holiday back to India. You know, in the India of the you know 1980s was not exactly the dynamic, bustling India that you see today. So it was still a kind of uh, antiquated India. But it, it kind of definitely rekindled my passion for, for Asia, you know, and, and starting at that around that age or, or kind of mid-late teenage years. When we would come back more often to India, I would insist on being able to do my own personal alone kind of backpacking trip in addition to having to do like a family wedding you know which I obviously found very boring at the time and so I started to really explore more and then my backpacking trips um, you know after high school became different Asian countries and Asia is huge right we're talking about you know seven or eight major civilizational clusters in 40 something countries and, and every year now that I live in Singapore um, I keep on going to new places in Asia that I've never been before. So definitely something was triggered in me, you know, coming back to Asia as a teenager. And, you know, 25 years later, I'm still constantly discovering or rediscovering new pockets of Asia and communities and cities and countries um, that, I, that I haven't been to before. And that can probably take me the rest of my life. You know, and I'm actually looking forward to it. Well. Uh, that, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming by. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh,